Hi everyone. Hi Andre and hey. hi Pip. Hi. Hi. All right. So, um, well, well, this is the third episode of Ways of Agile, our new new podcast. And uh, well, we today's <laughs> guest is <laughs> is Pip, who has uh, been a Scrum well Scrum master for qu- quite a while. Could uh, well, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, I don't know. Just as I start talking, the dogs start barking. Um, so my background in Scrum and being a Scrum Master has probably been over, gosh, 15 years. But I wasn't in it in the whole time. So I started off in Aviva and I won a fast track to management. Well, I didn't win it. I had to apply for it and I was successful in I was the person that came through it and I asked to go and work in what was known as IT and change back in the days when it was waterfall. So I started off as an an assistant project manager, if you like, and we were bringing in a new platform and we were going to be transforming from old legacy into new platform. So to keep me in that department after my secondment had finished, I went into doing a little bit of engineering or developing. Worst time of my life. It's, I didn't enjoy it. I passed the exam. I don't know how I passed the exam. I didn't enjoy it. But then we did a reshuffle and I reapplied for my job and I was given the role of a business analyst. So I did that for a very short time, but I was always really keen and interested in the Scrum Master role. So I kind of had a hiccup in the midst of all of this and had a slight accident, broke my back quite dramatically. And I was out of the business for probably about a couple of months but when I came back they said we have a role as a scrum master so I started in that role and I loved it absolutely loved it because it was focusing on the people and the culture and the values and driving and getting the best that we could and delivering and everything so I was being headhunted a lot for contract work so this is where the sort of hiccup happened because I left and went to work for my ex-partner's boat company he ran a tour boat company for 250 passengers and I, he said come and work for me until we get till you find a contract because I had to serve notice and everything it was a bit complex but being tenacious I wanted the company to succeed so I grew the company massively to they now I think have four boats and 30 staff doing really well but it took its toll so I went back into the world of being a scrum master again and I started working with Lloyd's and was there just about a year and a half almost two years but there was a lot of commute involved and a lot of travel so I moved out and went more locally and worked with the health it was for health services it was the booking systems for health service so I had an experience in there as a scrum master which was interesting when I say it lasted seven months, that's why I say it was interesting. Um, it was challenging. And then I was offered an opportunity to apply for a job, which was fabulous. And it was a fintech startup. I wouldn't say it was a startup when I joined. I would say it was more scaling. Um, so there was me and one other scrum master. Sorry, two other scrum masters. We had approximately five teams. By the time I'd finished, we were up at 15 teams, one of the most successful fintechs. 
and I was promoted into an engineering manager role, which was without technical knowledge required, but I knew enough. But due to personal circumstances, I needed to step back because it was very fast. What you decided in the morning changed by the evening. What you decided the next day was not relevant anymore. It was a conversation that was too old. So it was really fast. Um, and then I am where I am today in Safeguard. Came into Safeguard as a Scrum Master across two teams. Well, one team initially, then two. And I've since been promoted to Lead Agile Coach. And that's covering three teams more or less daily, plus another two on the fly, as I call it, support. Very full on at the moment for me because I don't have any Scrum Masters in my area. So I'm doing Lead Agile Coach with Product Line and also being in the work in the daytime, if you like, with the teams as well. So that's my journey over the last however many years. Well, that's, that's quite a journey, quite quite a few different uh, positions. Yeah. So I would say kind of, or I would like to ask, looking back, which company or which role, I guess, did you like the most and kind of why? What was specifically about that company or company <laughs> culture uh, that you enjoyed? It's really hard to answer that and give one company the kudos for I really enjoyed it. Because each one had amazing parts to it, but there was no perfect. Right. I've said this to Andre before, Aviva was probably my best grounding and the most amazing experience of transforming or, or moving from waterfall to agile way of working. That was my best, most embedded way of working in the way that I do. And you don't see it when you're in it until you've had other experiences and you reflect. Yeah. And then it's given me the tools in my toolkit that oh. I still use today. Fair enough. And could you walk us through what kind of the, what those tools are? <laughs> kind of what did you learn <laughs> from uh, from Aviva from your first scrum master role? I think one of the first things that I learned was stop having <laughs> don't have loads of emails, don't have loads of chats because we were using chat associated with outlook before it was teams and everything don't use that if you, if you <clears throat> we had a rule of thumb excuse me <clears throat> which if it was more than if you found this conversation was going more two three lines we just mobbed we just had a conversation but we were physically in the office and everybody thinks oh you're it must have been easier probably 60 percent of our team structure was offshore so right. in my team's I probably had about, I would say probably a good 60% of them were offshore. So I had a mix in each team. So that was the thing was we didn't sit and wait if there was a block or if there was something. We didn't sit back and kind of go, we'll wait till the daily the next day or or we won't ask. So that's the one thing that drove out of me. That's where my tenacity comes from. I, finding the right people to have together at the right time and not just have a conversation here, have a conversation here, have, and then go all round again. Cause by then a whole day's passed. So no, yeah, so, that was the learning. I, best one. No, fair <laughs> enough. That, it, that, you, would you say that those are the most important skills that you've learned as a scrum master since, or did you learn anything, any other skills that you'd say are quintessential to the role? I challenge massively. 
So that was one of the skills that I thought was a pain for people to constantly hear me asking questions or challenging it or going, do you think that's the right thing? Have we thought about something else? So I realized that that wasn't a bad thing. It was actually a, a really good thing to have. So that was one of the skills and it was encouraged. It wasn't discouraged. You were never held back. And that was one of the things that really helped me grow. And that was one of the skills that I've, I think Andre will probably tell you that I still have today. She does. <laughs> That's my input. And I actually want to touch. Yeah. Nothing else. <laughs> no, uh, I think you're great. And I actually oh, want to touch on something uh, because you're lucky enough to have to have had both roles of a scrum master and an agile coach. And how do you view the difference? Because we lightly touched upon the difference between scrum master and agile coach, mm. which is and isn't at the same time. Mm. So mm. I just want to hear your thoughts of, first of all, what's the difference between mm. them? And also if there's different skill sets required for one versus the other. It's a really interesting question. And it's one that sometimes I think people misunderstand scrum masters because scrum masters are agile coaches, but they're doing it on the ground daily with the teams. So as a scrum master, I see yourself kind of facing inward more with the team and you're kind of, I, I always call myself a mother hen. I'm kind of round my brood, protect them. If anybody annoys them or tries to sneak in the back door and ask for extra work, I'm the one there going, leave them alone, protect them. You face outward to try and get support where you need it. Whereas I think with an agile coach or in my role right now as a lead agile coach, you're kind of further out without being too immersed in the day-to-day. -day. You're depending on your scrum master to be more that first port of call or that, and it's not hierarchical either. It's flat. It's where I can coach and support, say, product owner, at a higher level or organizational or enterprise level. So it frees me up in that respect in an ideal state rather than the day-to-day -day of doing that and the team. So that's the difference I see. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. but do you think in terms of skill sets as an agile coach, you need anything extra to, to ramp up to that status? Not be afraid. A skill is... I said one thing to somebody. I said, I don't think my job's that difficult. And I was really flattered because they said, it's because you do it well, you don't find it hard. But the most sooner do those words come out of my mouth than a situation will come up and I'm like, oh, I don't know how to deal with this. It's so hard because it's people that at the end of the day and it's mindset and psychology and... The stuff we're trying to achieve is simple in its term. The thing that makes it difficult is people. So are there any skills? Are you thinking that an agile coach would have above and beyond to get them there to a scrum master? I was wondering if you would touch on a need for having some extra I, I I refer to it as a toolbox. And yeah. if you have some extra theories in your toolbox or some extra patterns that you saw that work, mm. 
I suppose it's just part of his experience. But my toolbox is back to that thing I said at the beginning. Is if I, I sometimes I call it fluffy, like I get a gut feel and think if I'm sensing something's not right. Nine hundred nine times out of ten, it's not right. There's something wrong, so I'll call it out. So the toolbox I use is rather than use feelings and emotions and all of those things, if I if I have a sense goes off to something's not right and I can see we need to fix it, I'll get the information and not dehumanise it, but if you use examples, so say, for instance, something's really so we had to, I'm really bad at articulating this. You can tell I do really well at my job. I had an example in a team where they weren't delivering and somebody called out for help saying we're not delivering and they were throwing more people at it and they were working really long hours, weekends. That's never that that's not healthy and it, it's actually counterproductive to the flow of the delivery and it's not faster. But rather than just calling that out, I evidenced it by giving an example by not having whip, for instance, this is actually slowing you down because you physically can't work on more than one thing at a time. So it's using things like critical chain and things like that. So that's my toolbox is I rely on ways of working, be it critical chain, be it your workflows, be it whatever, to evidence the problem rather than just purely emotional. So. That's my toolbox is get the evidence, get the data, get the information, get the trust and engage with your seniors to do it. Yeah. And I think that's the difference with an agile coach is that you're coaching further up, if you like, further up the tree because yeah. it's two ways. Because they're never good. They just want things done and things done fast. So that's my my kind of toolbox is find the evidence get the data and then bring them with you on the journey and get their trust yeah uh sorry to kind of uh, interrupt there but no. you mentioned whip uh i'm quite new to kind of this whole thing okay. what what do, you, what do you mean by that what uh is you work in progress right so you can add an example in a team where i had one engineer who was a machine he would literally go next, next, next. But because there was no whip, no work in progress limit, he just kept bringing things in. But it was just piling up to the further right. But he was just looking one way. So because it blocked him from pushing anything else along, he had to then look right and work as a team member rather than an individual. So I think work in progress if you limit it it actually increases the flow and it draws out the points where you might have a blocker or a bottleneck so you can see it clearer so if you see oh my gosh we can't get any more here there's a bottleneck you then discuss what's causing that and you start i use andre's heard me say this where i always say it's like crossing the road you, when you're working you look right you look left but you look right again before you pull more work along. Um, and no one person finishes a sprint, it's a team effort. So it's those kind of things. No, so that's probably yeah. the, the coaching style. That makes 
makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Good shout, Brad, on the whip. <laughs> uh, one thing which you also mentioned, and I think I want to dive a bit deeper into, is the psychological aspect mm. of this job and the psychology of the team. Mm. And do you have, first of all, how do you tackle this? Like when you join a team, uh, how important is it to understand the people that you're working with? I think that's your most important thing. And, how and it's do you taking, do it? I, I do it by being absolutely open and vulnerable. If I make a mistake, if I mess up, I own it. If I don't know, I take that and I say I don't know. I lean into them for information and support. I don't see myself as being something all-knowing. Um, and I think that's how I managed to, or hope it's how I managed to get people to warm towards me or work with me is by showing my own vulnerabilities. But equally, doing what I say, building a trust to making them feel safe. So I always spend time with each individual on the team when I first start, break down the barriers, let them realize that it's a safe space, no matter whether it's out with or within work, they have somewhere and someone to go to. Because a lot of time people don't always want to be speaking with their line manager. They want to have somebody that they can speak to. So, and especially in a remote environment, it's one thing I'm super passionate about, about the psychology and everything. And when you're in a meeting room back in the day before COVID, people couldn't sit off camera playing with these or on the keyboard writing a piece of code or checking an email because you're in the room. So we sometimes forget those what I call them netiquette behaviours that we need to adopt now. But it's having that trust. You can see a team in a remote environment where there isn't that trust or that cohesion of all the cameras are off. It's always a tell. And then you can very quickly work out who the individual is that's influencing that. So if you get them on side, that can influence the rest of the team. The alternative to that and the psychology behind it is ignore the person that's slowing the team down. Ignore the, the noise from the person that's creating a problem. Because if you do that, you draw everybody in that direction and you all focus on that individual. So you're then encouraging that behavior. So my trick has always been shut that person down, just ignore them and focus on the great people and encourage them to come out and then that individual will start to come and join the team and start being more of a team player. And that's all kind of the psychology tricks that I use. I sound like some kind of, I don't know, but I really, really think about this. But one thing which I want to point out to our listeners and our viewers is you're actually the third coach that we had on here. So we started with Gareth. Uh, it was mm -hmm. myself as a, as a guest in one episode and as i mentioned you're the third and throughout all of us there was a common theme of building trust mm -hmm. of having one-to-one -one mm -hmm. and being vulnerable yeah so i just want to point that out because it's easy to kind of skip it uh usually 
people mostly focus from what I've seen, I think. Uh, they mostly focus on what do you know? What can you do? Uh, what's your toolbox? How many different techniques do you know? How many different styles? How many teams have you worked with? Uh, show me the numbers, all that. Yeah. And not often enough, we think about how trustworthy a person can be and how easily someone can trust them or how easy they can be, I don't know, approached. Yeah. So I just want to point that out to our viewers. So moving on, uh, since this is also for people who want to understand what it's like to transition into this role, and perhaps we have a lot of people out there who have now pretty much have an idea of what the role is, what are the common traps for a new Scrum Master in your opinion? They fall into the role of a delivery manager. Can you explain that role? That they forget it's not just about delivering because you deliver as a team. So we're accountable, but we're not responsible. So they're slightly different. So you end up, I've worked with many Scrum Masters who push the team more of a project management style to deliver and are too influenced by the pressure from your seniors. And I've, I've had it, I've seen it, where you're being micromanaged and pushed, what's your team's velocity? When are you going to deliver? Why haven't you achieved this in sprint? Why are your team not doing more? I'm back, sorry. Everything. Just keep, yeah, did Don't you ask cool. Um when you're getting that pressure from out with the team, it's very, very easy in the trap that some scrum masters fall into is turning into a delivery manager. They start putting that same pressure they get onto the team. Why have you only done X points? Why is our velocity not better? Why have you done why, why, why? And it's not whereas what they should be considering is understanding what's creating the question from out with the team? What can we do to gain more trust and be more transparent without affecting the team and pressuring them? But that's one of the traps I've seen a lot of Scrum Masters fall into is turning into basically a delivery manager that's just cracking the whip and pushing without understanding how they could coach to do it better and have a faster flow with a better way of working. I did a value stream mapping session, funnily enough, with Steph and our colleague Andre in our last place of employment and actually highlighted it was so, so effective because it highlighted that what they thought was the team or the teams that were slow, it was the bottlenecks around the team. And we increased delivery tenfold like we were out into production environment I think it was something like three weeks it took once code was put into a quality environment or QA environment and through the different ones it was taking three weeks to get it out to the production environment we changed that to less than a day for all the teams 
Nice. So it was quite significant. And that was off the back <clears throat> of a value stream mapping session to call it out and put times in the, the handoffs. Do you mind going a little bit more into the value stream mapping uh, mm. just for anybody that's not familiar with it? So you take either, for me, it's a lot of people think about when they're working within, be it Scrum or Kanban or XP, whatever they're working with, they're kind of in this zone. But this is just one building block of a massive foundation. So there's from what I call from concept to complete. So when you do the value stream map, mapping session, I tended to look at was the journey from that point of starting, as in when it became a thing, to when it's in the customer's hands. So it's something touchy feely can feedback and then improve or or just leave whichever's appropriate. So you bring in the right people, representatives from all the different areas, do it on a mirror board, do whatever, and you kind of slice down all the different stages. So at this point, we have these people involved at this point, and then you work out the times. So you send them off with a wee project, if you like, to go put your times in. So from that bit there to when you get sign off here, how many days, how long does that take? And you put times in amongst it. And then you see where the biggest chunk of time is and the lag is. And when you actually come out of the woods and look at it, you see that it's not actually the scrum teams or the deliverable within that product development. It's the customer or it's the within product side where they're trying to negotiate with customer about the highest priority or something and it's going backwards and forwards. And by the time you get the discovery part done and those things take quite a long time. And then we found at the other end, we were holding things I call code, these little things like Amazon boxes that are all little packages with unit tests and all wrapped up in a bowl. I visualized them in my head sitting on the shelf in a warehouse waiting for the next delivery guy to come in and pop them out into the world of production and that's what was happening so we changed it so you'll have heard maybe have heard of um, continuous delivery where you've got release trains so imagine yeah. like a train coming round the room and you know that oh the train's going to come past the station at this time we'll just push it and we'll catch the next train that's your continuous delivery view so you've just got this continuous thing happening that you're not waiting to push out and I think value stream mapping definitely lets you two things it lets you see the time lag between different areas but it also lets you see the the journey of the whole thing not just that one little slice that we are in product development no, quite good fun no. good fun <laughs> well, all right thank you for that explanation Mm. Yeah, one one small thing which I want to come back to again because we also try to pay attention to details for anyone who doesn't fully understand uh, the business. Uh, and mm -hmm. you mentioned velocity. Yeah, oh, don't. This is this is yeah. This is one of the most common traps, and I yeah. fell in it. And I think it deserves to have. Mm. a bit more clarifying of what it is what yeah. it is used for and what what it shouldn't be used for because i i mean should, i think you know what i'm trying it. to get at yeah we should bury it we should have a ceremonial burial of velocity in the way that people use it so i've used a multitude of things 
So the first warning I will give anybody listening to this is velocity is a team measurement tool for their own selves. It's an inward metric for themselves, whether the t-shirt, that small, medium or large, whether the story point, whether the time estimate, whatever they choose as a velocity tool to measure their speed of efficiency. It's for the team. It's not a higher management reporting thing. Oh, I can get so angry about this. I've been <laughs> in businesses where story points have been used as a tool or a rod to smack people with if they don't achieve. You can fudge story points. What a three-point story is to you could be a five to somebody else, could be an eight to somebody else. It's up for debate. You could fudge it. And don't get me still, I'm on a rant. Andre, why did you ask this question? <laughs> then you have people oh, that use one. story points as, oh, it's three points because it'll take three days. Oh, don't. And then you usually find these people are not taking for the full completion. It's for the development part. You don't have a team of developers. You have a team of engineers with some that are more skilled in quality and some that are more skilled in development. They're all engineers. So when you when you are looking at how you're going to look at your speed of efficiency or what you can chew through and how you can commit to what you do, just be mindful of that. It's from there to there, not just to do this bit. But there is a caveat with this. As I rant on about velocity, you need to be able to transparently show your deliverable of value to business. And it's having a metric or having a measurement or showing the impact of the thing that you've done and the value it's brought. And this will resonate probably with you, Andre, because it's been a very hot topic with us recently. But if you're running a business and it costs you £50,000 to operate that business on a monthly basis, to put a roof over its head, to run the electricity, to put the stock in the shelves and to sell it to the customer, would you be happy if you just kept paying that every month and made no money? You weren't giving anything to the customer. You're just sitting with a lovely shop. No, you'd be out of business within probably two or three months. Product development is exactly the same. We as teams cost money to operate. We're a, we're a business. So we need to put something of value to customer that they want to buy or use that will make us that money back. And if we start just going, oh, we've delivered 40 story points this last sprint. Great. What did the customer get? What's the value? What did you make for the business? We're in a place of business. We're not in a place of playing with code and talking to agile staff. And we have to deliver value. And I think... Velocity is a big bugbear of mine, in case you can't tell, Andre. I do get yeah. really upset by it. I, I I fully agree with you, and it's why I wanted to touch on this. And delivering value, that's that should be the main focus. And with quality. With quality, with, obviously. Definitely. And then, mm -hmm. obviously, being agile, you work on your quality. You You get mm -hmm. feedback as often as you can put stuff Quicker, into yeah. the hands of the users and then reiterate. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, thank you <laughs> for going right. on a rant.
I know. Uh, it's just like, don't talk to me about story points. Don't. Saves me from doing it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. One. Let's, let's completely switch the setting now. Okay. What elements from, from Agile you came across that you think cannot be thought cannot be taught in books or courses or university i could be really mean and say all of them <laughs> it would be an interesting discussion then this is really interesting because oh, you know me on this one i'm not a theorist i have books i read things that are relevant to a situation i come across like flow we talked about flow before and i want to get my head into that and want to understand what it give me some pointers of how i can improve that so i can practice it but i i have this thing that you can be book smart and practical stupid so i've worked with graduates um and it was interesting to hear from them who've been in engineering and computing science and all that work. And I asked them, how much do you cover in your university courses relating to what does Agile mean? What are the different, um, so you have an, I said agility is not a thing, it's a, it's a, it's a mindset, but then you have frameworks within it that you can use your values and your principles around they get approximately one afternoon out of their whole college or university training on it now that was about two years ago three years ago was the last time i asked that question that's how much time is dedicated to what is agile and what does it mean that's more than i got in uni so which is quite is that... interesting considering that if you're training to be uh working computers working engineering probably 80 percent of companies are adopting transformation i call it evolution and agility mindset with different frameworks and it's really interesting they don't cover it so the experience is on the ground rather than in the classroom and I guess I got one more question, which I, I really want to ask, and then I'll leave, I'll leave some for Brad as well. <laughs> but you've also mentioned working with a lot of Scrum Masters, mm. and I'm also assuming a lot of Scrum Masters from all over the globe. Yeah. Do you think language barriers play a factor in how good a Scrum Master is? Not just language barriers, cultural barriers. Or, yeah, that as well. So, it can. Oh, I'm going to tell a story. This is going to sound so bad. <laughs> Those are the best stories. So, I worked with a chap who was from one of the third parties, one of the companies that we brought in, contracted in to help us with projects. And this chap was so nervous that he started off his first day on dailies with a whiteboard. It was back in the good old days of whiteboards. You know, we did have Jira, but we had this thing where we physically got people to move things on the whiteboard at dailies because it 
releases endorphins and all these great things and people feel a sense of achievement so it's a green great team camaraderie thing especially when it's a magnetized whiteboard it's amazing um and he would come with a post-it note for any oh here's a blocker on this to this i think by the end of the first week he had an a5 pad by the end of the second week he was on an a4 pad and i was really awful because i said if you don't watch you're going to be walking with a whiteboard under your arm next (laughs) but it worries me that you're coming to a meeting and it was it was the language barrier and it wasn't until I actually made a joke and I spoke to him that I realised that he said, everybody speaks so fast. I can't keep up. I said, just go and have a look in Jira. All the comments of the tickets are there. Just, And you're not, they, they can do that without you. You don't need to be there every day. You're getting a bit stressed. But he was under a lot of pressure. He was on his visa. He didn't want to fail because it was his first visa. And... Once you got in underneath the skin of it, it broke that barrier down and he, he relaxed a bit. I wouldn't say that I turned the screen upside down, you know, control alt up and did all those kind of things and played tricks and all and did a few, but out of the just to get him kind of feeling less hit up and wound up about it. But it was definitely a cultural thing because the drive from his manager on shore, it was a completely different brief to what ours was so he was under a lot of pressure so there was that definitely impacted because of the under- misunderstanding of language it's interesting it's really interesting yeah. but there is another side to it which is to do with the culture in different countries that you work where women are perceived and this could go in a whole different direction within that hierarchy and how that works so that can definitely impact how you work with other scrum masters would you be okay to discuss about this a bit further okay so i have this analogy there's a sketch from i think it was carolina hearn i, I mean even if gareth watches this back we had on the show before he knows this because i call it the tennis ball so she there's a sketch where she's walking along a road and there's a bunch of guys standing around a car and they've locked their keys in the car and you can tell how old the sketch is and she walked past and said oh if you get a tennis ball cut it in half you can pop the lock and you'll be able to get in the car they never and she said there's a sports shop around the corner and they carried on trying to get in the car with bits of wire and whatever and about five or ten minutes later one of the group said oh think there's a thing you can do with a tennis ball i think there's a sports shop around the corner and she's busy in the background throwing her arms around going can nobody hear me that is the best analogy of life for a female sometimes in engineering so you can be in an environment where you say something and it can be a bit of white noise and it's like you've never said the words but then your male counterpart can say it and it's instantly heard and it's unconscious. That's when we speak about unconscious bias. I could go into so many topics. Wow. It's not the, and it happens a lot. Women have to be quite strong or work their way in which they're heard. And sometimes you have to be quieter to be heard. 
which sounds a bit odd. Otherwise, it just becomes yeah. white noise constantly. And so, sorry, could, could you go back uh, a bit more into that to be quieter, to be heard? And... So I'm quite a talkative person and I'm very passionate. But sometimes when you'll have experienced this, I'm sure, where somebody speaks and instantly the barriers are again. So you're instantly switched off and it's white noise. So sometimes just absorbing and listening and then not maybe using the energy in that conversation, but finding elsewhere. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, Which I'm now intrigued. Do any of you experience that of feeling not heard? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I would say especially in roles where I'm just perceived as being new and being okay. kind of too inexperienced. Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I, if it's comparable to kind of what you've described mm -hmm. as being a woman in, in kind of the, uh, the engineering field, but uh, yeah, the, the way that I just discovered that I, I get a, a I guess I get past that is just I've become more blunt, I think, which is almost yeah. kind of has a shock effect uh, to yeah. begin with. And that gets you heard a, a lot more. Yeah. And it's it's sad sometimes when we have to be so abrupt. Yeah. But I also, so taking away this sort of gender, whether you're male, female, whichever, I feel sometimes that scrum masters people just see them as administrators and Jira monkeys or yeah. facilitators, the fluffy bits without, but that comes from maybe an opportunity for us as a community to be more clear about what we do and how we benefit the organization and the teams within it. Should we, get into that i honestly because i think we we keep skimming on the surface what we actually do and it depends from company to company mm -hmm. as always mm -hmm. but obviously so we are in the context where there was a huge layoff of over a thousand coaches and i think we do live in a world where uh, there are a lot of two-day courses which are being sold and they basically yeah. make you a scrum master. So let's let's dig a bit deeper into how do we actually bring value into a company as scrum masters or how do you bring value more specifically? Sounded very threatening. Um... <laughs> I'm okay. sorry. It's okay. Um I would say that for me, bringing value is building a team that's cohesive, communicative, and transparent, but deliver value fast is my work here is done. So there's a Nanny McPhee saying, and I can never remember it, but if you look it up, it's, it's there when you need us, but you don't want us. 
and I'm gone when you want me, but you don't need me. So if you think about the words that I've just said, yeah. you're never going to be with a scrum team forever or a Kanban team or whatever. You're there like Nanny McPhee. I'm there because you need me, not because you want me. I will do my stuff. I will give you the tools. I will build you into this self-organizing and functioning team by all these peripheral things that everybody thinks is fluffy while giving structure of process and different things. And then I can back out and step back, but still be available if needed, but step away. Because, and that's the second part of the saying where, but gone when you want me, gone when you want me, but you no longer need me kind of thing. So you just want me there. You don't really need me there. It's a habit. It's not a needed. And I think that's, if you had no coaches, because I see Scrum Masters as coaches, in, as we spoke about at the beginning within teams, I think the journey that people go to transform into a fully agile mindset with different frameworks, and I'm talking organization all the way through, I think would be a far longer, more painful journey without us there as the conduits of the flow of the change. And I would really challenge a company to do it without any coach in that environment. It's also the, the way that you described it of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm there when you need me, but uh, you don't want me and I'm gone when you want me, but you don't need me. Doesn't that put, I guess, to some extent, the scrum masters in a, a, a place or a, a danger of never being quite recognized or kind of uh, for, for the value they bring until they're, they're almost like too late. Yeah. I think there's always that danger because it's the danger comes from our role being so in nondescript and being so vague that the instant feel when there's redundancy or there's cull or there's, you know, the economy right now is so fragile and it's so bad in so many pockets they go yeah they're expendable they don't deliver anything what they're not seeing is if you have a football team with a coach when you need to make a cutback in that football team are you going to let the coach go first yeah makes sense you know so you can play five aside football so you can always show, you can always minimize your team, but you always need a coach. So yeah. that's that's a challenge I put out to business, and it's I would love to see, and I would happily take that information and take that education of show me a company that's done this well without any kind of coach, without any kind of scrum master involved, and it's been quick, and it's been painless, and it's been successful. I'd be really interested to know. I'm going to end up eating my glass or something because you'll find somebody or somebody's going to say, we did it. But then if that's the case, everybody would do it. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And what would you say then for a somebody that wants to become a scrum master, I guess, in this environment with the economy mm -hmm. being so fragile, uh, would you have any, I guess, advice of how to navigate the the current industry? Yeah, I would, 
I found it being, and you might have found this as well, Vlad, was being a business analyst was a really good start point for me. I'm not going to talk about the engineering part of that world because that was so painful. But interestingly enough, a lot of engineers move in that direction towards being a scrum master. But now there's more in the realms of engineering managers, which allow that sort of crossover, which is good. But the thing I would say is buddy up, mentor, get a mentor, get, get a buddy, get somebody that you can walk with and learn from as well as doing the the thing that you spoke about Andre people are going to get these two-day courses they're making these courses harder so that unless you have physical experience you can't pass them quite as easily mm. but find somebody if you're in a business already and it's the kind of vocation you want to go into look look I there was an engineer I worked with she was amazing and she buddied with me I was her kind of mentor with her to kind of help steer her in that direction and give her some pointers and let her facilitate a few things and give her some ways in which she could do that. And that would be my kind of guidance. If you're on the outside trying to get into it, think about what you do in your life currently because it's about people, it's about teamwork, and it's about being very selfless because it's not, I call it leading from behind. So you're a bit like a shepherd. You're kind of getting them all in the right place and steering them and supporting them. So it's honing in on those skills and focusing those because we all do our job, but sometimes, unfortunately, people in business are out for themselves. They don't ever work with people with a view to really supporting them. They're doing it for an opportunity to get further. Don't do that in business. Look at a way in which you can get knowledge from somebody for to support them and to gain the knowledge and gain skills that will then be transferable in the role as an agile coach or scrum master. Mm-hmm. That sounds a lot of words. It's not easy. No, it's a, it's a very good advice. No, it does make sense. Absolutely, it is. Uh, it's important advice. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 kind of my situation that I'm, I'm uh, close friends with with Andre exactly. for quite a while. So I've I've been lucky that I've been able to have somebody that I can ask questions and yeah. ask for advice quite uh, in quite a few tricky situations along the along the way. So yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And there's a lot of communities out there. I mean, we have Agile Scotland. There's Lean Agile. There's lots of these communities, and they'll do a lot of. Um, seminars and meetups and things they're 100 percent worth getting engaged with because that's not just an opportunity to learn but to network so if you're wanting to step into that environment start getting yourself along to those things and network and meet people because that's where the opportunities come and you'd be surprised at the amazing people that you meet not always but usually i might be there so not always Uh, and all right one thing which uh, i really wanted to ask because this is like a taboo thing i think do you ever get any pushback from the team because i think most of the time okay okay yeah that's interesting most of the time you're kind of imposed like this is the new scrum master for the team you don't usually pick your scrum master as a team mm. 
And walk us through your story Oof. with the yes. I get pushed back. To. I get pushed back a lot of times. And one thing I want to put to bed before anybody says this: Scrum masters are not just all about soft and fluffy. And how about we try this? And here's an idea. Here, sometimes you have to go. That's the way you're doing it. Just do it. Done. And that is allowed. But some people don't perceive that as a behaviour that a scrum master should have. There are occasions when it is required. This might be one of them that I'm about to tell you about. So I had a team. And this team were not functional. There was a lot. I seem to end up with bad teams for me to sort out. But this team was exceptionally difficult. You're very strong, opinionated engineers. It was, they didn't speak with the quality engineer. The product owner was project managing them. It was painful can't believe I'm having to revisit this in my mind again and every camera was off every camera and the product owner I very quickly realized that the product owner was the the bad apple in the cart that she was infecting the rest of the team and encouraging the bad behaviors of certain engineers and individuals and everything I suggested, nope, nope. My opportunity came when the product owner went for holidays. So I said, let's just mix it up a little bit, just till she gets back. All the cameras came on, they gave it. So I got into one of the engineers and kind of started in his ear a little bit, then in another engineer's ear, and then in another one, just individually. And then I would try something. I would suggest something to one on the fly. Saying, oh, I was thinking about doing an icebreaker at the start of retro, just maybe to get a bit more traction. What do you think? What kind of questions could I ask to get them involved? And they really liked that idea. So I thought, I've got one on board and they're quite a strong person. That was step one. So instead of just getting a hand when this product owner went on holiday, we got all this evolution happening during that time, or revolution, whichever. But this original team, when there's a pushback from a team, it's not the team that's pushing back. It's an individual with the strongest voice or the strongest influence within the team that's making that happen. So if you can break that one, the rest will come together. So fast forward, team were great, still keep in touch with them. Um, the product owner left because she couldn't cope with me then kind of moving in and but when I got underneath the skin of it to speak to this individual on their own I said do you understand what my job is and then it became clear that she'd never run a team with a scrum master involved she'd done both she was product owner and scrumming but she didn't know that's what it was so she didn't see how I fitted so there was a real clash going on so that's what caused the problem. So when I explained it to her, she decided she didn't want to work in the business anymore anyway and left. So not that I, not that I yeah. push people when they challenge me to like, hey, put up with me or get out. But, but it, it, it's strange that it's the people that are that ingrained in their ways that they, they have no agility to, to, to put it that way. To kind of... The amount of times that I have heard people saying, I'm agile, 
and I want to do bad things. <laughs> You're not agile. It's an agile mindset with principles and, and values. It's like when you, you live as an individual, you have morals, your values. It's part of who you are. You don't say, I don't know how you would describe that. You wouldn't go around and introduce yourself saying, I am moral. Yeah, I don't know. So it's not like, you, so you don't go around going, I am agile. It's it's kind of the thing that supports, it's the underpinning, the foundations of how you start working with the frameworks and adopting the values and the principles to support the frameworks. And it's quite interesting when I hear people go, yes, I'm, I'm agile. I'm like, well, I'm quite nifty on my toes too, but thanks. <laughs> All right. Yes. So there's, I mean, there's so many topics I want to, I want to cover. <laughs> I'll honestly. come back. I'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of the things which I, I also want to, so we, we spoke to the audience that do not understand Scrum or the mm. IT world. Now let's also, uh, turn our heads towards the audience that understands Scrum mm -hmm. and perhaps want to do it better. Yeah. And I actually want to go from the end. Let's go for interviews. And you, you, I know you have done a lot of interviews. Do you have any red flags that you're looking for in Scrum Masters? Or do you have anything that... Mm you're actually looking for when you want to have someone work for your company. Yeah. So when they talk about what, this is going to sound like an anti-pattern thing, but they can't give me clear definitive of what they brought to the team to improve their momentum. So they'll, red flags for me is when they reverberate the values and the principles of Agile pretty, for, pretty much word for word but when I ask for an example of give me an example and taught me from beginning to end what you did and how, what was the outcome and they can't give me anything. There's nothing about them. It's about the team, but not the influence they had. So they can't give me anything. That's a red flag. They can't give me anything tangible of, Oh, I changed the whole structure of X. I redid this and then brought the team along and this changed the way of working. That's to me a good example. But when they say, oh, but the team started to do, well, okay, but what did you do? And they can't verbalize that. That's a red flag because trust me, and I say this and I mean it in the nicest way, there are some really shocking scrum masters out there. I'm not saying I'm great, but I've seen awful to the point that I had one that was a contractor, obviously getting paid a lot of money, came in and he asked me how to set a bi-weekly cadence for a sprint and when would he do retro? I'm thinking, whoa, that's quite scary. So red flags for me is when they can't give an example of how they would, like the team I spoke about, how would they break down those barriers, give me an example, how if they brought 
customers and stakeholders along in the journey. Those are the kind of things I look for. Okay. Do you ever look at experience in terms of actual years? So you have two CVs, 10 years experience versus two years experience. No. You get somebody that's posted it for five years and is just like the chap I just explained. And then you could have somebody like yourself, Vlad, that's just not long into the role, but you've absolutely nailed it and you're doing amazing. It's about the achievements that you make. It's a bit like saying life experience. That's like saying somebody at the age of 80 has way more life experience than somebody of 25. It's not true. It's what you deal with during those years. You could have somebody at 80 that just goes two holidays a year and never goes and moves house, never experienced anything. So are they more experienced in life than a 25-year-old that suffered as we've just come up to an anniversary of Ukraine? Who's got most life experience? Same yeah. with the job. Same thing with the job. All right. And let's flip the coin. You're going to an interview at a company and uh, we're living in rough times right now. And I think there's a lot of people that are looking for a job. Mm -hmm. What does a red flag mean to you when you're looking at a company? The wording in the... Of? What I'm careful of is when they use the word manage in the the job spec and they kind of confuse the wording along with that of a project manager. Like you must deliver to manage a team, to deliver reports. All of those key wordings that scream project manager to me or delivery manager, I stay well away from. Would you say that if somebody were new and they'd be looking at a first scrum uh, master position, those those types of roles where you would have those red flags, should you go for them anyway? Are they a learning experience or would they teach you bad habits that will only make it harder further down the road? It's a difficult one because it depends how many people are in the scrum community within the business. And that's a key question. How many other scrum masters are there that I would be working alongside? Because that's your opportunity then to lean and learn from. So the bad habits you're hoping that if you come in and you're successful and you choose to go that route, they're, they're not being encouraged or adopted by those people already in. Usually when you see that, you see I see also there's an opportunity there to coach and transform and work with your senior management, your sort of enterprise level as well, because they're still obviously in a journey. But if you're really tough times and you're getting really close and this is kind of wording in an advert find out how many other scrum people there are you work with i've been catfished in that way i went for a job where i was told i'd be working with other scrum masters it's just me <laughs> i lasted four days i walked out it was horrendous the rest of the scrum masters were at another location working properly in the way that i really envisaged that i was promised and when I arrived, it was I was put, given a laptop and told to go and sit in a corner. And I had to stay there till five o'clock in the evening and all my team were offshore in India. They finished at three UK time. I'm thinking, why am I still sitting here? So my decision was give them the laptop back and get the train. 
So that, that's interesting. So you have there are companies out there that will kind of implement Scrum the right way for almost like one Scrum team, and then try to yeah. force a delivery manager in another team. Yeah. So they had different projects and different products. So they were forcing a way of working in this, what I called this, I just had a vision of this beautiful building with this utopia, you know, everybody like birds singing and everybody happy because it was wonderfully agile and the way that people thought. And then I was in the dungeon with, <laughs> I had to go to a meeting to report my retrospective back to my senior bosses so that they wanted to know if anything negative had been said about them. That was day two. I'm surprised I made it to four. <laughs> like, whoa. So, but that was a catfish job, if you like. It was absolutely given everything, answered all the right questions. And that was me with the knowledge I had. And I went in and I was like, whoa, this isn't what I was promised. Oh, that's, yeah. It happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a, a tough kind of industry to navigate sometimes. Yeah. And it's finding I think that's when it's things like going to your meetups or leaning into the agile community. It's finding the right questions to ask if you're given the opportunity of an interview. Yeah. And one of the questions I picked up and was off LinkedIn that I think is a good one to ask, not just to clarify the job, but for your own self for certainty, is at the very end of the interview, and I think I told you this one, Andre was to say to them, are there any red flags about me that have been raised during this conversation that we can address now? And it was really good because my last interview, they went, yeah, there was just one. And I went, okay, let's discuss it. And that was it. It was fine. Rather than then leave the room virtually and go, yeah, yeah that was something I wasn't quite happy with. And apparently it's guaranteed if you ask that kind of question, you'll get the offer of a job. Worked for me. <laughs> Worked. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, but so you, you're you interviewing your people as well as them interviewing you. So it's, it's two ways. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right, enough about interviews. And let's come back to another topic, which... How many topics on this? I've got about <laughs> I've got about twenty-eight more slides in my I will give you one more. Come on, one more. <laughs> All right. Um this is one thing which I'm actually selfishly asking for myself as well. Okay. I do use a lot of one-to-one -one approaches and mm -hmm. they work amazingly mm -hmm. most of the times. And what about retrospectives? Like walk me through a successful retrospective, obviously without getting into too many details, but just how do you make a retrospective work? Because honestly, for new Scrum Masters and when I started in this business, usually retrospectives for me were, guys, come on, tell me something that did not go well or what do we want to keep doing or i have a question i have a question for you then okay okay and this is one of my toolbox things so 
I'm hoping you're going to say, and I'm going to sound really stupid. So when do you have the the space where you do the retrospective setup? When if, when is that prepared? So say you're doing the retrospective on Monday. Right. Do they fill out the board on Monday? Because we're virtual, so we're using retrospective boards. You're not in a you're not in a room. So do you create it and they put their points on at the beginning of the retrospective, a bit like lean coffee kind of approach? So one thing which I try to enforce, which doesn't really happen as I wanted, is write things down as they happen, because after two days you're gonna forget about them. Okay. And mostly realistically we end up writing things down at the beginning. Okay. So Yeah. Interesting. My retrospectives we at the end of the retrospective I'm like, right guys, the new board's ready, I'll share the link and I usually pin it. But I'm that annoying little noise every few days going that sounds like a good one for the board. You're going to stick it on the board. You're going to stick it on the board. Just a wee nudge every time throughout the yeah. whole sprint or the two-week cadence. And a day before, I'll usually send a message or in daily or whatever session going, oh, I'm so disappointed to look to the board and there's hardly anything on it. But you've all been moaning for the last week and a half. So I, I kind of just play it and just get a bit of fun out of it and get them really to the point now that if I don't have the board ready the day after that retro, I am getting pinged by the engineers to go, where's the board? So I always do a health check and I always compare during at the end of retro. And I always have two actions for the team. And we always reflect on the last actions we agreed and we sanity check whether or not they were successful. I love retros. Yeah, I guess that's what I don't do enough. Just constantly remind people, by the way. Yeah, it's called nagging. The board is empty. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that was the word. Yeah, but I sometimes put on the feigned kind of like, I'm so upset. I don't know if I'm going to keep my camera on because it's hurt me to the core. Nobody's using my board. And I leave it there. And I'll go, hey, do we need a retro? Because it seems like everything's going so well. And they'll just be like, no, we need a board. Let's just crack on. But so guilt a lot, tripping. yeah, a guilt trip, absolutely. It's a treat. But there's one thing that a lot of scrum masters, agile coaches fall into the habit or fall into the, because if you were in an office and you're all co-located, there's a lot of easier things happen. So if you've got an issue or something, it's usually dealt with during that period of time. And you go in a room and you usually give everybody 10, 15 minutes to doodle on boards, write on post-its, anchor sales, whatever it be. We don't have that energy because we're remote. So it's having an interactive space that's there constantly. And so many scrum masters that I've known still work as if we're in the office and they don't have a space for them during those two weeks. And it's at the last moment when it starts just before yeah. retro. 
I use myself and I say, guys, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. So how you can remember what happened two weeks ago blows my mind. And that, you know, just use a bit of humour and guilting, shaming, all the key things to do as a scrum master. Definitely. Works a treat. <laughs> all right. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you very tips. much. That was very insightful. Well, I hope it was decent and I hope nobody comes back. See, she talked nonsense. Then. <laughs> no, honestly, so. it was very insightful for I I I learned quite a few bits myself. So it's glad. Uh, Good. I'm definitely well, gonna use uh, a few of these tips and tricks. Invoice right. in the post, no problem. Nice. <laughs> On that Thanks note, I'll advice, stop yeah. the recording. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.